Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast. We have a phenomenal guest for you today. She is a local to the Seattle area, and she is a traditional Western herbalist who has studied herbalism, plant taxonomy, and food science at the Evergreen State College, and then went on to study with renowned herbalist Cascade Anderson Geller in Portland, Oregon. Since her studies with Cascade, she has studied with several herbalists, including Matthew Wood, Dr. Sheila Kingsbury, Missy Rose, and Margie Flint, and she has founded the Adiantum School of Plant Medicine in 2016, where she teaches two nine-month herbal medicine programs, regular classes on the topic of plant medicine. She practices and teaches Western herbalism with a Pacific Northwest flair. She has also taught for NUNM in Portland, the WAAHG Green Gathering, Seattle Tilth Farmworks, the Beacon Hill Food Forest, the Washington National Parks Fund, and the Evergreen State College. Please welcome Natalie Hammerquist to our show. Hi, Brian. How are you doing, Natalie? Doing pretty good today. Just about to make a cream a little bit, an herb-infused cream. Oh, what's all in your cream? Um, doing it, I always like to do a run-through before I teach a class, so I'm going to do a calendula cream, which is pretty, it's basically just like calendula um, tea and then calendula infused oil and then you put beeswax in it. So how long does a cream like that usually take to make? Um, creams are actually pretty quick. Um, it kind of depends on, sometimes you need to like let it cool for a while, but creams probably take about 15 minutes. Um, getting the ingredients is really the hard part or the you, time consuming part. Do you source your ingredients out from other places or do you forage it yourself? Uh, it depends on what it is. Um, I, for classes, I usually go to the store and buy them just because it's kind of more than I can forage by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's certain things like I really like, uh, commercially dried calendula flowers because they can be really hard to dry by yourself. Um, and it's hard to like get enough, you know, but other things I really like to forage from the wild, like pine sap and poplar buds and stuff like that. Yeah. Last time I actually, um, hung out with you, we went foraging over in kind of central Eastern Washington towards... I think that was kind of towards the end of fall. Do you do mm -hmm. a whole lot of foraging in winter or is that kind of a bad month to get out there and forage for your own herbs? Um, winter just has less stuff because obviously like there's no flowers and there's no leaves. Um, you can get barks in the wintertime. Um, and in fact, the winter and the fall and the spring are the best time to get barks just because there's the energy is all um, in the bark rather than the leaves. So whenever there's not leaves on something is a good time to get bark like off a tree or whatever. Um, and there's a couple other things like tree buds, like, um, cottonwood buds are a good time to harvest right now. But other than that, it's, it's a little bit limited in the winter time. Is it harder to identify in the winter, the plants? Um, yeah, there's actually like a whole, um, like you can get books about twig identification, which teaches you how to identify trees from like their buds and twigs in the winter time. So it's, it's kind of notoriously difficult, but um, one way that you can do it is looking at the leaves on the ground or um, knowing which trees they are from being there in the summertime. So you kind of have to uh, go out and find your different locations for different plants, and then you can go back to those same areas in the winter if you want to really know what you are getting. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually the best foraging technique is, is go to places you already know the plants and kind of get to know where those things are. Um, 
and then you can like traditional people have been doing that for ages um having like patches of things so kind of a foraging technique i guess well, that makes sense so what what can herbs do for somebody um Why are herb- they such a big deal <laughs> herbs are a huge deal um herbs are definitely first of all one part of the puzzle um Herbalists really believe in an integrative approach, meaning that herbs are like maybe one part of the triangle and you might include lifestyle and other things. Um, But herbs on their own um, are similar to pharmaceutical medicine in some ways in that there are chemicals in the herbs that are acting in your body to do certain things. Um, But they also work very differently than pharmaceutical medicine. And by pharmaceutical medicine, I mean things like antibiotics or, you know, things that come in pills that you get from a pharmacy like um, ibuprofen you know, both over-the-counter and prescription. Um, But herbs are much less heroic. They have, what I like to think about it is they they have a lot less momentum than pharmaceuticals, um, which in my opinion is a good thing. Um, But it does mean that there are situations in which I think like going to the hospital or taking pharmaceutical medicine is a really good idea um, just because herbs don't have that like huge bang that pharmaceuticals do. That said, That means that they um, can work really well on chronic diseases, which um, a lot of pharmaceutical medicines work on disease management, whereas there are options for herbs um, that might even lead towards a cure. But again, that's all always part of a holistic picture. Like there's a lot of diseases, chronic diseases that will never be cured if you don't look at diet, if you don't look at lifestyle, if you don't look at emotional environment. Um, But herbs, can also work for some of those acute diseases. Um, But I like to think of it as like there's a point of no return, Um, like cancer, for example. I think that the early stages of cancer, um, if you really know what you're doing, I think there are chances that you could cure cancer using herbs as part of kind of like an integrative treatment approach. But there kind of becomes a point of no return where it's so severe that whatever momentum herbs bring is not enough to reverse the momentum of the disease if that makes sense. So herbs can do a lot of things. They can work with chronic digestive issues. They can work with chronic kidney issues. Um, They can work with skin issues, um, liver disease, all kinds of different stuff like that, Um, urinary tract issues. Uh, But there are certain things that once they get to a certain stage, it's kind of like herbs can't really help. They're more like managing the disease um, situation. So yeah, herbs can do a lot, but they're also, they have their limits. So in your example earlier, when you were talking about herbs being beneficial towards cancer, if you catch cancer early, are you talking about the early stages of cancer or the later stages? Because a lot of studies are showing that cancer takes about eight to 10 years to fully manifest. So are you talking about like the first five or six years or anything after that six-year mark when the cancer cells are really starting to inflate and take off, is that when the herbs are going to be beneficial, or does it really matter within that range? I know it's a big question. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with, first of all, herbs are work best when used preventatively. So um, even like starting when you're young and using herbs to keep your body balanced, can really help um, that cancer not even develop in the first place, which is ideal. Um, And then there's like the early, early stages of cancer like you're talking about. Um, And that would be, again, the second most ideal where you're using the herbs to, um, you know, help eliminate the cells, help your immune system fight the cancer by itself. 
Um, and then kind of the point of no return I'm talking about is where the immune system is so compromised um, and the cancer is so virulent that, um, you know, I, I actually do think that all diseases can be cured, but it's just a matter of are you willing to do what it would take? Uh, and often the answer is no for people. Um, and often they don't know what that thing is, you know, what, whatever that promised cure, um, maybe they haven't discovered it yet or whatnot. Um, but I think for like the average knowledge level of an herbal practitioner, there's certainly a point at which the cancer becomes, um, they, they kind of lose hope. And it, it is pretty sensitive too, because as an herbalist, I'm not allowed to practice medicine. Um, and so that limits it a lot. And doctors are often not willing to work with the herbalist. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it, at the end of the day, it's tough even to say um, where that point is because of the options um, that are kind of available for herbalists. I don't know if that answers your question a little bit. It does. And, <laughs> Vague. Um, yeah, I've noticed even in my own practice that there's so many um, doctors that don't really know what herbs can do. And if they see that one of their patients is taking an herb because they don't know what kind of reaction it might have with a medication that they have prescribed, they'll just tell them, stop the herb. And it could very well be that that herb is exactly what they need or a formula is exactly what they need. But because the doctors don't know and they're the ones wearing the white coats, then people are more likely to just listen to that um, information instead and just cut out the herbs. So I think a big part of it is more awareness, and I think a big part of it is a lot of people need to start becoming their own um, counselors and uh, seek guidance with their intuition instead of just what people are saying and go with what they really think is going to help their systems. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, I definitely think you're, you hit on an interesting thing there in that um, the way that we've set up this medical system has really incentivized self-education because nobody's really qualified to tell you anything except yourself, right? Like, we can all teach, like we can make podcasts, we can teach classes, but as far as like direct health advice, it's very limited. Um, so it's, it's almost, yeah, necessitized this like self-education and figuring out like being your own practitioner, which actually isn't the most ideal situation, but it's kind of what we've come to. Um, and luckily people are getting really into it. Like you're doing this podcast, um, and there's people all over the country doing really wonderful things as far as that's concerned. And I think now that we're in an um, age of just tons of media, there's more and more information getting out there too. So more people that have been sick for years and years are starting to figure out there is different avenues that they can try and test out to see if it'll help them. And even 10 years ago, a lot of people different didn't know about these different avenues. Yeah, and it's, it is interesting because it's almost a curse and a blessing, right? Like there's so many different ways of looking at these things that it's hard to say what is actually serving you and what's not. So I guess my advice for people to navigate that is really pay attention to what is actually helping you and what's actually making you feel better. Because I think often people will get really like kind of into this dogmatic approach to these things and they'll think like, oh, this is the one thing that's going to be the answer to everything. Um, and sometimes actually the best answer is just to relax <laughs> and to not stress out so much about things. And I, I, at least from what I've seen in my practice, you, if you really want to get better, you have to be at a certain stage with your own um, desires that you are willing to put the work in for it. 
because there really isn't a magic pill that will get you better. There's a whole list of different components that you need to do in order to get yourself in the right direction of healing. And that takes work. Yes, that is the other thing about um, <clears throat> what herbs can do for you is herbs kind of will only do things for you if you're on board with them. Um, you know, pharmaceuticals are like we're, we live in a culture where we're, we expect for things to just be solved by taking a pill and herbs definitely don't really work that way. Exactly. So how would I know what herb to take and how much of that herb I should take for whatever illness or disease that I may be suffering from? Um, that is a very complicated question. I will endeavor um, to answer it. Um, so first of all, every herbalist is going to have a different answer to this question. So I just want to make that clear. I always try to make my answers kind of like as inclusive as possible. Um, but of course, there's going to be that other herbalist that's like, well, what about this? Um, so most people probably are going to be reading um, some kind of book or getting something off the internet and trying this herbal remedy. Um, and or they're reading like a science article um, and getting information from there. Personally, as a kind of holistic Western herbalist, or as you said, traditional Western herbalist, um, which is kind of the uh, school of thought that I come from, um, we, we make decisions based on certain things. Um, and we look at a lot of different symptoms and actually we do tongue assessment, um, which you can totally learn. There's classes on it and things online. Um, but we think about like, do you wanna stimulate or sedate so for example, like your liver could be underactive or overactive. Your thyroid, right? You can have hypothyroid and hyperthyroid, underactive and overactive. Um, so there's certain herbs that stimulate and there's certain herbs that sedate. So that's one decision that you can make. Um, you can also make the decision, do you want more fluid or less fluid? Like if you have a super dry cough, you need more fluid, right? So you need moistening herbs. A great moistening herb, for example, is marshmallow, root or slippery elm. Um, so those would be traditional like dry cough remedies. Um, we, you can also have dry skin and all kinds of other dry things. You can have dry joints. Um, and then you also want to make a decision about whether you want to build or you want to purge. And purge means you want to get stuff out of there like toxins or mucus. Um, so for example, if you had a cough that like where you had like a bunch of mucus stuck in your lungs, you want herbs that are going to help you get that out of there. So you want things that are going to thin it out. You want things that are going to get, like expectorants, we call them. Um, they're, they're going to get that out of your lungs. And then build would be if you're feeling like chronic fatigue would be example an example of a disease that's very based on what we in herbalism call deficiency, where, there, where you would need to build. Um, and there's a lot of uh, tonic herbs. Uh, we call them tonics because they help build, um, build your energy up or build your immunity. Um, one example of that is astragalus. Another example is um, ginseng. Um, and so those are kind of three um, dichotomies of actions that you can think about. And then you can also think about what body system they're working on. Um, if you are if you're want to deal with a cough, there's a lot of herbs that work on the lungs. And there's some herbs that don't work on the lungs at all. So you want to kind of figure out which herbs affect which body systems because you don't want to be using some herb that pretty much does nothing for whatever organ you're trying to reach. For example, um, golden seal, which is like a super popular antimicrobial herb, um, isn't really good for UTIs. It, it can kind of help for other reasons, but um, it's not good for urinary tract infections because it's not metabolized through the kidney. Um, it's metabolized through the liver. So whatever antimicrobial action it has is going to be more on the GI tract and the liver. Whereas you look at an herb like uva ursi and it has these 
antimicrobial compounds that are metabolized through the kidneys. And so it's a fantastic um, antimicrobial herb for that entire system. Um, so there's, yeah, so there's kind of some things you need to know about every herb. And one way that you can figure that out is just by reading, um, you can get like herb encyclopedias. And I always like to look at more than one source because sometimes an herbalist like didn't get it all or they have this like other weird thing they do with the herb that maybe is like just their weird thing. Um, so that's kind of how you decide which herb to use. Um, and probably having like a, going to a class or getting a teacher might be a good place to start with that. Um, but Which you do classes, right? I do, yeah. Um, I do kind of apprenticeship classes. So those are like more in-depth, like nine-month-long programs. And then I also do like intro to herbalism, which today we're kind of talking about some of the things that I might talk about in some of my classes. And you can find that at adiantumschool.com? Yep, adiantumschool.com, indeed. Adiantum. How do you spell that? A-D-I-A-N-T-U-M. School.com yeah. after. And Adiantum, so my Got school it. is named, by the way, after um, Maidenhair Fern, which is a really cool fern we have in Washington. It has a black stem um, and it has kind of like these palm shaped fronds on it. So if you ever are in the woods and you see a, fer a fern with a black stem, it's Adiantum pedatum, and that's um, what my school is named after. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Is that only on the west side of Washington or east side? Uh, or? You probably wouldn't find it on the east side. Ferns really like water. So you can imagine like, and this fern in particular really likes water. So you'll find it kind of in more like rainforesty situations, like in the Olympic Peninsula um, and other kind of more developed forests. Now, is there any herbal properties that you use adiantum for? You know, ironically, I actually don't use that. It, you can use it. Um, apparently, it doesn't have a super strong action, but I just really like the plant. Um, my grandpa grew it when <laughs> I was a kid, and I, I just fell in love with it a long time ago. Well, there you go. So how um, how much of an herb would I take? All right, dosage. I, yes, <laughs> dosage is always a big question. Yes. Um, so I actually have this kind of um, chart. Unfortunately, we're, we're doing audio today, so I can't show it to you. But um, I have this chart where I really believe that the dosage, um, the smaller the dose, the deeper. And by deep, I mean like, you know, you could even consider like karmic or... Um, like emotional, those kind of things would be really deep. Um, so homeopathy, for example, is like highly diluted. Um, they use minerals and plants and stuff, but it's highly diluted and it's supposed to work in this different way. Um, and I would consider those energetic doses. So for the purposes of herbalism though, like a small dose would be considered one to three drops. And there are some herbalists actually, like Matthew Wood is really famous for um, what we call drop dosing. So that's like one to three drops. And that is a very small dose of herbs. Um, and that will be much more gradual, um, most likely, unless it, the herb is really well chosen and well needed. Um, you wouldn't notice like an immediate effect from that. The other end of that spectrum would be taking like a whole tablespoon of the herb. Um, and the chance of the times when I would do that is when what I'm trying to do is very physical and very immediate and very symptoms based. For example, if I'm trying to kill pain, I'm actually going against what the body wants me to do. Um, the body wants to have that pain response because it's telling you, fix this, fix this. Um, so if I, my, my favorite pain remedy, which unfortunately makes you really sleepy, but it really does work, um, is hops tincture. And I take it like one tablespoon every hour, which is a heck of a lot of tincture, right? And that's actually so much tincture that you might even notice 
like weird side effects, like you might feel a little bit dry, you might get a sinus headache from getting so dry, because the herb will dry you out. Um, and kind of in the middle is like the more common dosage where chronic illnesses, most herbalists say like kind of 20 to 30 drops, 20 to 60 drops. Um, that's kind of like an average dose that you'll probably see from the from your local herbalist. Um, it's usually like what they put on the tincture package. We're talking about tinctures, by the way. Um, capsules would probably be like one capsule, two capsules a day, sometimes more. Um, so larger doses are going to push harder. Smaller doses are going to be much more gradual. And sometimes gradual is what you want because if you go gradually, sometimes it can stick better. So usually what gradual doses would be over a long period of time. And then the larger dose, doses might be something for like infections or um, pain relief, um, things where pushing the body is necessary in order to achieve your goal. Um, so that said, so that's, that's how much, but also how often is a really important question. Um, usually for acute situations, you're going to see really frequent dosage. So acute would be like an infection or a cold or a fever, like something that you need to do right now. Um, and we're going to see like every 15 minutes or every hour, that kind of dosage. Uh, maybe like 30 drops every 15 minutes or 60 drops every hour or something like that. Um, for chronic situations, um, we're going to look at much longer period, like three to six months. And um, we're talking about two or three times a day you're going to be taking that dosage. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. So uh, what form of an herb, like tincture, capsules, what is, have you found to be the, the best way to treat different illnesses or ailments? Um, that definitely depends on a couple things. <clears throat> um, it depends on the herb. Um, so some herbs, for example, like extract really well in alcohol. Some don't. Um, some herbs really need some kind of extractor, like you make tea and you're using the water to extract stuff. You make a tincture, you're using alcohol to extract stuff. Um, but with capsules, you're really just getting like pieces of the herb. And sometimes your body can't extract things from that. Um, so it really depends on the herb. And usually a lot of herbalists um, will have like what they prefer, like what preparation they prefer in their books um, or blogs or whatever you're reading. Um, also, there's certain things, little tricks, like for example, hot tea um, is the best way to reach the respiratory tract, which I found really interesting, especially if you put honey in that tea because it helps the herbs stick to the area better. Um, and the heat actually helps, is medicinal as well. And then cold tea is the best way to reach the kidneys. Apparently, when the water is cold, it goes straight to the kidneys and it actually has like a diuretic action, which I find really interesting. Um, and then like powder is a really good way to reach the GI tract. Um, if you're looking at, you know, like a lot of powders for leaky gut um, are coming out these days with like uh, glutamine and um, marshmallow root and licorice root and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it really depends. And then the tinctures um, work really well on the liver. They work really well for infections. Um, and they work really not well for other things. Like tinctures are really heating. They're really like, can be irritating. So for things like rashes um, and urinary tract infections, I don't recommend tinctures generally. Do you ever steam herbs for any kind of respiratory issue? Um, you know, just because I'm actually kind of a lazy herbalist, which is a good thing because <laughs> most people are lazy. 
<laughs> when it comes, you know, to like this whole production, you know, we all have all this stuff we need to do. So I actually just use essential oils in a steam. Um, I would probably, I, I do steams if like, that's the only thing I have, like I'm in some foreign country and like, all I can find is this weird herb I found at the market. Um, but yeah, in generally steams are really good for um, like respiratory tract stuff, which I love eucalyptus essential oil. That's one of my favorite remedies. It really helps like dislodge the mucus and kind of kill potential infections in there in the sinuses and the lungs. Um, have you noticed, do essential oils work as well compared to if you steam the actual herb itself? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I have to say, I don't know. I, I use the essential oil and I find it to be pretty strong. I think that the only reason that you wouldn't use the essential oil is that they are so concentrated that they can be kind of irritating. Um, in which case, that's why it might be better to use the actual steamed herb. Do you uh, take essential oils internally or no? I don't. And I really, I'm, I'm kind of of the camp that you shouldn't. And I actually haven't, I haven't experienced to back this up. Um, I went to an herb shop in Vancouver, BC, and um, they told me, oh yeah, like take this fennel essential oil internally. Um, and it tasted really good. So I was like, okay, I'll take it internally. And so I took like a couple drops a couple times a day. Um, and then I put some in a bath one time and I totally broke out in hives all over my body. Um, and my theory is that it's because I took, first of all, after I took that much internal essential oils, my liver started to hurt. So I stopped taking it and I took some like liver support herbs. Um, but I really think that they can do some damage if you take them in like too high of doses. Well, it's really concentrated in the oil, isn't it? Yeah. So I think I developed an allergy to fennel from that and I still like can't really do fennel, unfortunately. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's other situations where like oregano oil, for example, is a really fantastic antibiotic. I try to only use it topically. But there might be situations in which um, I might take it to avoid using like a really powerful antibiotic, like pharmaceutical antibiotic. What brand of oils do you use? Do you have a favorite? Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm not, there's a lot of people that are really obsessed with quality and essential oils. And I'm a very pragmatic person. I'm kind of like, if it works, it works. And I'm happy with that. Um, so I just get Uncle Harry's, which is actually a local brand, um, and they are very cheap, and they're not organic. But again, I'm like not, I'm not super paranoid about that. Some people are, and that's fine. Yeah, I haven't heard of Uncle Harry. Are they from Washington? Yeah, it's um, located in Redmond, and it's a company that makes, they make like uh, toothpaste um, and all kinds of stuff, and all of their products are like super natural. They're not necessarily organic, but the ingredients are so basic, like they use bentonite clay. Um, they use like calcium carbonate, which is basically ground up seashells. Um, they use essential oils. Uh, they use distilled water and um, they have all kinds of different products that I really love. I'll have to look into them. Yeah. So going back to dosing, there's a lot of uh, companies that work with herbs that try to extract specific constituents from herbs and then um, put those into formulas or whatever tinctures in a higher dose do you think that's a good practice for herbs to just be trying to pull one specific constituent or do you think the herb needs to be in its full form that is a super darn good question um like theoretically 
in some situations that seems like it would be a good idea, right? Like if we know scientifically that this one thing does this certain thing and it's not toxic, like that seems like a really good idea. But um, in my actual like empirical observations of herbs, all the herbs that I use at home are pretty much like full spectrum, non-extracted. Um, like I, you know, tincture a lot of what I wildcraft. I make teas out of what I wildcraft. Um, you know, I use powders, which are also the whole herb form. And I just find them to work perfectly fine um, in that way. And I think that the, the idea of isolating a constituent comes very much from the mindset of modern medicine, which is to say that there is a chemical that we need to give our body because our body is not making it and it's not performing this function on its own. And so we need to supplement. Um, and that's very much not the opinion of holistic practitioners. You know, holistic practitioner, in my opinion, holistic medicine is all about bringing balance to the body so the body can take care of itself. Um, and I think that whole herbs are much more suited to that because we really, we can't like, pretend to explain what a lot of these herbs do from a holistic standpoint. Like, you know, we, we say like it um, sedates the liver or like in Chinese medicine, they say things like it softens the liver. Like we can't, we can't just pick one constituent and say that this is the thing that's quote unquote softening the liver, you know? Um, so I, I don't use any ex like extracts or anything like expensive like that. And the other reason I really don't agree with using extracts is that they're really expensive and I really believe that herbalism is something that's unique in that people can go out into nature and get this stuff for free, not spend $60 a bottle on it at the vitamin store. Um, and I feel, I feel pretty strongly about that, um, that herbalism is kind of the people's medicine. Yeah, and I think nature has its way that it has created all these different plants in a specific way with all these different constituents in a, you know, a specific way for specific purposes. And I think if we try to extract, like you said, one constituent out of a plant, then now we're losing all those other constituents that were in place for a reason for that plant to be effective. Yeah, in fact, there's one super good example that might help illustrate that, which is willow bark. Um, aspirin comes from willow bark, and aspirin is basically like salicylic acid. <clears throat> so willow bark has salicylic acid in it, um, and thus, when you take willow bark, it's an anti-inflammatory. So aspirin can be irritating to the gut lining, um, as can ibuprofen and all those other, other things. Willow bark is not irritating to the GI tract, and that is because it has certain constituents that actually prevent that from happening. So they kind of like balance the effect of the herb. And I think that's a great example of like us thinking, oh, this is the thing that does the thing we want. But then what about these other constituents that we kind of just naturally overlook that, I think. And I think if you find one constituent that helps for a specific ailment, I believe you can get a patent on that, which is what a lot of pharmaceutical companies do. But you can't get a patent on an entire plant. Correct. Yeah, yet. Yeah, <laughs> we we hope yet. that will never happen. But yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why that has become so popular is because it's um, it'll make people money, you know? Yep, and there's so many unknowns with plants that we still don't know, and one of the examples I always like is you take a carrot, and it has roughly 1,800 different constituents in a carrot, and only 200 of which we actually know about. 
So if we're looking for one specific constituent and we only know, you know, a portion of the total constituents, well, there's so much more in there that we really don't know about and we don't know if it's important or not. Yeah, and I think I think it's actually unwise to endeavor upon knowing all that anyway. Like it seems like a waste of time to me, right? Like we if we know something works, do we really need to know exactly how it works? And I think that's one of the major differences between herbalists and like doctors or kind of like evidence-based medicine people is that herbalists are more concerned that that it works, you know, and how do we make it work rather than how it works. And for that reason, we have kind of these like metaphorical understandings of how the human body works that aren't necessarily like exactly like the liver pathways that um, a lot of people feel like they need to memorize. And I think that actually overcomplicates it to the point that um, it, it doesn't actually really help you help the person. And I think a lot of it too with the um, over research that we do is that I think a lot of people are bored but also trying to figure out just the next way that they can make money. And if they continue yeah. to research into the constituents, then they can make more money if they find a home run hitter. Yeah, indeed. And so, yeah, I think the best the best answer for um, somebody that really wants to get into herbalism is to, to get into like picking your own stuff because that's, that's the really like genuine altruistic um, medicine. And you build a deeper connection with the plants that you're using too because not only do you know what the plan is, but now you're um, going out, finding it, seeing what it looks like in its full form instead of cut and sifted or even just in a pill form like you might find from the store. So you're building a connection with that herb. Yeah, and there's actually, um, there's a good reason uh, as far as learning what the herb does, there's a good reason that that's, um, that's helpful. So there's what's called the doctrine of signatures which is basically looking at where a plant grows and figuring out what that plant might be good for. For example, a lot of plants that grow like in super wet, um, muddy, like pond areas are really good for um, people who have like too much phlegm or a lot of stagnation. So, so the kind of like whatever body um, situation you have, you can actually look at the environment of the plant and you can kind of assume that that plant is going to apply in some way to a mirror image of that in your body. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah, so like we'll take yellow pond lily, for example, um, which is kind of a rare herb, but a rarely used herb, but it, it grows like in the muck at the bottom of a pond, um, and it's specifically used um, for pelvic stagnation. So people that like don't have enough movement in their um, uterus, for example, like women who don't have enough or men who um, are having like prostate issues um, because there's like too much fluid down there. Um, and so that, that's an example of a correlation. Like not only is this thing at the bottom of the pond where your pelvis is at the bottom of your body, but it's also working on that same like mucky situation um, in there. That's super fascinating. Do you have any more examples like that? Um, yeah, so willow, um, bark, willow bark is an interesting one. It really loves to grow next to water. And in fact, willow is actually um, a water filtration tree. So it helps filter whatever water it's touching, um, which is really important for the environment, obviously. Um, and that said, so willow is a blood thinner, um, which goes along with the water, water thing. 
um, and Willow also helps get things moving. Um, and so it kind of has this same energy as the yellow pond lily growing in the pond, like it's helping cleanse, essentially. Um, another example of that would be um, like golden seal, which grows in forests, um, in the forest floor. Um, and it really likes the shade. Um, and it really likes wet versus Oregon grape, which is used very similarly to golden seal. Um, in fact, we harvested some Oregon grape together. It was really dry, right? It was like on the east side of the mountains. Um, it was really prickly, like dry dirt that it was growing in. Mm -hmm. um, and so golden seal is more for, it's more drying, right? Because it grows in this wet environment. And so it can dry us out. Whereas Oregon grape is more for damp conditions because, it, or sorry, it's more for dry conditions because it can help uh, dampen. So it kind of has this like opposite effect, right? We, so we use the organ grape in dry conditions because that's where it grows. And we use the golden seal in wet conditions because that's where it grows. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you wouldn't really know that information unless you're out there taking a look at the actual plants or um, reading about other people's experiences with these plants in books. So really established herbalists. Totally. And yeah, and, and this you don't need to be like a super fancy herbalist to um, learn these things. You know, that originally people learned about herbal medicine by observing in nature. Um, and you can do the same thing. So uh, with that, how do I know if the herb I'm taking or harvesting is actually going to be safe for me? Um, there's a lot of different things that go into um, figuring out safety. First of all, some herbs actually contain toxic compounds that if you take too much of that herb, it can be bad. Um, some of them are just toxic, like the herb itself is toxic, but um, we use a lot of toxic herbs in herbalism, and I kind of would recommend when you first start out, just don't use those herbs. And some examples of that might be aconite, which is a famous poison. Um, also like poke root, which is one of my favorite herbs, and, but it really needs to be used correctly. Like if you take more than a couple drops, it, you could throw up. Um, lobelia is also famous for making you throw up in large doses. Um, but there's other things like comfrey root, which um, is kind of, people are talking about a lot for their, it has pyrolizidine, pure, I think is how you pronounce it, pyrolizidine alkaloids. And that's something that bioaccumulates in your liver. And so if you take too much over a period of time, you can get certain kind of liver failure. So that's one thing to think about when you're talking about herb safety. Um, another thing to think about is that some herbs can irritate certain organs. Um, for example, uva ursi, which is commonly used for urinary tract infections, is not for long-term use because it can irritate the stomach lining. It can actually like lead to getting ulcers if you took too much of it. Um, so that, that's a really good thing to know about uva ursi. Like if you were like, oh, this uva ursi is making me feel great. I'm going to take it every day for like six months. Like you'll probably get an ulcer. Um, so you need to think about the exactly how to use the herb and how long it's appropriate. For uva ursi, how long does it take before it starts disrupting the gut? Uh, I wouldn't take it for more than two weeks, probably. Um, so this is a situation where probably what, what would lead you to taking it enough to harm you would be like if you had recurrent urinary tract infection. So if you were taking this like two weeks out of every month, um, that might lead to something bad. Um, and I actually, this happened to me. So I can, I can assure you that it is, <laughs> I, I, you kind of read things with a grain of salt sometimes, but this is, this is legit. Um, so I took too much uva ursi and I definitely like got ulcer um, symptoms and now whenever I take uva ursi at all it actually irritates it almost immediately um, and that was I think I was taking it for like two months or so um, maybe three 
and like in larger doses and not not with a lot of herbs like this you can take it with marshmallow root and it will help um, not make it not so irritating um, I wasn't doing that so I, I was not being a good herbalist <laughs> um, so there's things you can do to avoid that you just need to be well educated when it comes to um, kind of herb combinations and all that stuff yeah, I was going to ask, do you find that using an individual herb um, can cause more side effects than if you use them in a formula or with other assisting herbs? Um, I find that is most true when we're talking about herbs that can be irritating um, and herbs that can be drying. Um, so we kind of say that um, like golden seal is another good example. So golden seal and uva ursi are kind of my two two herbs that I have actually personally experienced the negative effects when they, when you don't use them correctly. Golden seal, if you take too much golden seal alone, it can actually give you um, a severe sinus headache because it dries out your mucous membrane so much that they like tighten. Um, and so the way that you would take golden seal again is put the marshmallow root with it. Marshmallow root is kind of like the classic uh, moistening agent to help balance super drying agents. Um, and it also is good for um, keeping irritation, irritative agents like under wraps. So yeah, um, I would say that golden seal, uva ursi, um, and there's a couple other ones. But as far as other herbs, like herbs that are moistening and stuff, like you could take bucket loads of marshmallow root and never have a problem. Okay. Um, so when it comes to herbalism... Do you usually use herbs that are more local to the person that you're working with, or do you use herbs from all over the world, or is does it make a difference? I mean, there's so many plants out there to choose from. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do you even decide? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I am nothing if not a pragmatist, um, and so I use what works, and I have certain relationships with certain herbs um, that I feel really comfortable on relying on these herbs to do what I want them to do. Um, so that's kind of how I make my decisions. Like I have pretty deep connections with herbs like red alder and red root and um, marshmallow root, and so I will use those herbs no matter who the person is. Um, if that person requests, like. I really love working with people to see what they have in their own environment and what they can actually pick themselves. Um, and I have done that before. Like I'll go to the person's house and see what they have in the garden and um, kind of like make recommendations based on that. Um, but if I, if I have my own way, I really like to work with kind of like my friends, you know, the herbs that work really well for me and that I have lots of experience with. And I think a lot of different herbalists kind of have their arsenal of herbs that they use. I think I saw that most like, master herbalists only have 30 to 50 herbs that they regularly use is that kind of the same line that you are i would say that's definitely true yeah i think the the like average kind of like high level herbalists like i probably have about 200 herbs in my what we call a materia medica which is like the herbs you use um or that you know about and that you've used in practice um but yeah as far as like what we really heavily use and know about probably 30 to 50. And that way you learn much more about those herbs, too, on a deeper level instead of briefly knowing a little bit about 300 herbs. You know a lot about 30 herbs. Yeah, and, you know, that kind of happens naturally because every so often, sometimes you use herbs and they're kind of like, yeah, I guess that kind of worked maybe. But then there's certain herbs that you take and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that people don't know about this. Like, 
you know, whatever happened was so miraculous that um, this herb is going to be my friend forever. And so like there's certain plants like Oregon grape is one of those plants for me. Like I have seen such miracles come from that plant um, that it's, it's definitely like on my top list of herbs I use. Yeah. So, like the dream team. <laughs> <laughs> so what are a couple other ones that you use all the time? Gosh, golden seal and Oregon grape are definitely super on the top of my list. Um, one of my kind of like random specialties is actually fighting infection. Um, so a lot, a lot of my top herbs are infection fighting herbs. Um, red root is another one. Um, sometimes I say red root is my favorite right now. I'm like really on a golden seal kick. Um, and then gosh, I really love sage because it can do so much and you can get it at the grocery store and you can even like steal it from your neighbor's yard, which I find really awesome. Um, I love sage for like sore throats um, and sage is really like drying and kind of stimulating to the lungs. So it can really help get some of that like deep, yucky um, phlegm out of there. And it's such a humble herb, you know. Um, and then, gosh, I've really been liking yarrow lately as well. I think, I think I'll put that as the, the last player on my dream team. Yeah, we found some yarrow over in eastern Washington when we went foraging. Yeah, they have really good yarrow over there because when yarrow is in dry, um, dry locations, it makes a lot of those essential oils and gets really like aromatic. So you mentioned sage, which a lot of people use in cooking um, in their kitchens. Are there a lot of other herbs that you could use for different things that you would typically find in someone's kitchen? Yes, um, ginger would be another good example of that. Um, <clears throat> ginger is useful for all kinds of things, um, but I would put ginger and cayenne in kind of the same category of herbs that help circulation. Um, and actually, this might be a little unexpected. Most people would say like, oh, ginger tea for stomach aches, which is great for some stomach aches. Um, but I really like ginger and cayenne for old injuries. Um, so, you know, when people, there's like acute hot injuries that are like super swelling and like throbbing and like almost like you touch it and it's hot. You don't want to put chilies or ginger on that. But when you have those old injuries that maybe even have like some scar tissue, they feel cold, they feel stiff. Um, the traditional herbal approach to treating that would be to apply something that is kind of almost irritating or stimulating and cayenne actually like makes your skin red and it can actually burn sometimes but it really gets the blood in there so what's happening is the blood gets in there and then your the waste tissue or the waste products are going out um, and it can really turn injuries like that around I had a friend who had a really swollen knuckle for like six months and we put what's called a chili plaster which is essentially cloth dipped in chili oil we put a chili plaster around his finger and an hour later the swelling was completely gone and he could like move his finger again after one application. So how do you make the plaster? Um, there's actually a, a TV show from BBC um, called Grow Your Own Drugs and one of the episodes has like a full on like cooking show demonstration on how to make this but basically you put oil and you boil habanero chilies in it and then you strain the chilies out and you put beeswax to harden it and you dip um, pieces of fabric, like little squares of fabric, and then you dry them so they harden. Um, and then you can keep those in the fridge and just put um, put it on your skin whenever you need it and it'll like melt and the, the chili oil will get into your skin and do what it needs to do. How long does something like that stay um, fresh in the fridge or? Gosh, I've kept it for like a whole year. Oh, really? Yeah, especially coconut oil is, is a good oil because it's pretty stable. Um, so I use coconut oil. And then yeah, as long as you keep it in the fridge, like it's not as important because you're not using it internally for the oil not to be like, 
you know, maybe it might get a little rancid after a year, but you're not taking it internally. So well, that's not quite as important. That's good to know. I thought a lot of those things were a couple weeks max and then they're not going to do what you expect them to do when you need them. Yeah, it's, I have not found that with this particular preparation. I've actually used like two-year-old ones and found they were great. Oh, wow. Good. I wouldn't, not that I recommend you <laughs> keeping it in your refrigerator for two years. You know, you should probably be using them anyway. But yeah. Well, that's good to know. Um, do you have any tried and true remedies that you like to use? Absolutely. I've mentioned a couple of them already. Um, <clears throat> sage and honey tea, which I usually put ginger in there sometimes, is one of my favorites to recommend to people that are just coming into herbalism because those are two things you can get at the grocery store. Um, and I like to use that for sore throats, like that kind of situation where you wake up and like you're having trouble swallowing, um, but also like the beginning stages of a cold, um, kind of anything where there's like congestion in the lungs or the sinuses. Um, and then another one, which I just used recently again, um, is Oregon grape, like I said, is one of my miracle remedies. Um, and you can make an Oregon grape tea by boiling it on the stove in water. And the, the tea will be like really yellow. Um, and then you put a cloth in it and you can use it as an eye compress for conjunctivitis or eye infections. Um, and this is actually so effective that you can, sometimes it only takes one application. Sometimes you have to do a second one um, and it'll completely clear up the infection. So Oregon grape seems to be one of your heavy hitters. It is. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's a pretty remarkable herb. Um, and that said, so another, so Oregon grape and golden seal are considered kind of like brothers. You know, there's certain herbs that like have maybe similar, if not like complementary actions. So, um, they both have berberine, which is this, you know, single compound that apparently is an antimicrobial, um, but they're both very yellow. And they both um, are antimicrobials and they both work with the liver. Um, and golden seal, like I said before, is very drying. So um, another interesting thing to use golden seal for is rashes. And you wouldn't expect like that drying out a rash would be a good idea. Um, but I had this like super itchy rash one time and, uh, you know, from a bug bite or something like that. And I put golden seal on it and like 10 minutes later, the redness was gone. Um, and, you know, it, it, I had to apply it a couple more times, but it, really miraculous stuff. Now, that uh, probably won't work for all rashes, that said. So, you know, always, like, <laughs> do a test patch before. <laughs> how, how did you apply that on? Was that another uh, plaster or poultice or? Golden seal tincture. Oh, you used a tincture. Just rubbed it right on, yeah. Um, and sometimes a tincture, you know, the alcohol can be irritating, um, if you have like really sensitive skin or eczema or something. Um, so if you know that about yourself, obviously like, you know, try a tea or something like that. But I, I had the tincture and so I put it on there and it worked so good. Do you, um, make any of your own like cosmetics or anything like that using herbal herbs such as say deodorant or? Yeah, I do. Um, I make like creams, I make, um, salves. I really like to make salves a lot. Um, I make oils. Um, what else do I do? Sometimes I make face masks. Um, but I, I think my favorite, as far as like actually using herbs specifically, like rather than just using like, you know, apricot oil and stuff. Um, I really like to do tea for my hair or infused vinegars. Uh, I don't use shampoo in my hair. And so like, I kind of have all these other creative things that I do instead. Um, and one of those is using tea like horsetail and yarrow um, as tea in my hair. 
and it kind of makes it like shiny and it can help like clean it out a little bit. So if you're making like a, a body lotion or something similar to that, are you using herbs more as scents or do you actually have like a medicinal property that you're trying to shoot for with them or like a moistening property? Um, usually, yeah, I would be going for the medicinal properties of, of whatever it is. Um, like chamomile is a really great one. Um, goat to cola is a really great one. And so like if I was making a cream, you would make like a really, really strong tea and use that as the water component in the cream. Or you can make infused oils. Um, and so, yeah, I'm definitely going for the medicinal component when I make these things. And are these all stuff that you teach in your classes? Um, yeah, I actually have. Um, so I do medicine making classes and I, I divide it into like kind of topical remedies and internal remedies. Um, and I'm teaching actually creams, infused oils and salves tomorrow, which is sold out. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I do those ones regularly. And, and I do kind of like single classes, like I'll teach about bitters or I'll teach about like making elixirs or, you know, different things like that. Um, not not necessarily regularly, but kind of whatever I'm feeling at that moment. And can you go into more detail about your herb mentor programs and apprenticeships? Yeah, um, so I do two apprenticeships, um, and probably by the time listeners will get this, unfortunately, it might be a little late. Um, registration closes on February 28th for uh, my foundations program, but it's going to meet every Thursday during the day. Um, and we're basically going through everything you need to know to be a holistic, traditional Western herbalist. Um, but then also we're going to go outside. So it's every other week we'll be inside one week um, and do like PowerPoints and activities and like tea tasting and tincture tasting. And then the next week we'll go outside in the park and do plant identification and harvesting um, and all the things that herbalists do outside. Um, so that's the foundations program. And the two programs that I have, one's a weekend program, which is one weekend a month. And then the one's a weekday program. Um, <clears throat> so they're very similar as far as the curriculum. The foundations program has more hours, so it'll be more in-depth. Um, we'll probably look at things like pulse reading and tongue diagnosis and stuff like that that um, the other program won't have as much of a chance to cover. Uh, but, yeah, if you are interested in registering in those, um, both programs will be starting up again um, in March of 2018. So a year away. Yeah. I also do private lessons. <laughs> if you can't wait that long. And all of that can be found at adiantumschool.com, correct? That, that's correct. Yeah. And there's kind of like course descriptions and registration deadlines and stuff like that. And people are welcome to contact me. I'm really good at um, giving very long, exhaustive answers to questions. So, And all that information will be in the show notes. So if anybody looks in the show notes, then they know exactly where to go to find all these different programs. Awesome. And yeah, just, just a, a plug for the apprenticeship programs. Like we have so much fun together. Um, I usually do my kind of sweet spot is about six students. Um, and like they, all my students from my apprenticeship program have become such good friends. They like hang out outside of class and it's kind of like a big family and we get to go on adventures together at the same time of like learning a whole lot. Um, so I really, I highly recommend it as like a learning environment. We, I, I have a lot of fun doing it too. I was going to ask about uh, class sizes. So you keep them pretty intimate and small then. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I, I guess I would even call myself militant about class size. That's why a lot of my classes sell out because I really, um, I'm trained to be a teacher. And so like I have, I have standards for like how I want the class to go. Um, so I will definitely limit class sizes 
very religiously depending on like I, I want to provide an experience for people. That way, if you do sign up for one of her classes or programs, you know that you're not going to get lost in the crowd. It's going to be very intimate, a small number of people, and you're going to get a lot of actual hands-on learning from Natalie. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to mention, too, um, last kind of as we finish up here, um, I also do day trips and weekend trips. I've got a day trip and a weekend trip in June. Um, and so if you're kind of like not sure about herbalism or you like re are really into just the foraging part, um, that might be a good place to start. And if more people are interested, if they send you a note, are you more open to having more of those available? Absolutely, yeah. I'm actually, um, right now, I, I always take suggestions from people, and I'm putting together a family herbal class right now um, based on the suggestion of a student. Um, and so it'll be, there'll be two teachers, one for the kids and one for the adults. I'm, I'll be the adult teacher, and then I, I'm working with this really cool person um, to teach the kids about plants. Um, so yeah, I love, I love suggestions and I always listen to them. I always think about like what time the classes are and like, can people make it after work and stuff like that. So please send awesome. me suggestions. Awesome. Where can people find you? Um, you mean on the internet? Yep. yep. Um, so I have a website as we've said already, adiantumschool.com. Um, my email address is adiantumschool at gmail.com. So as long as you can spell adiantum, <laughs> you can go, you can go to the website. And then I also have a Facebook page which if you search for Addie Anthem School, you should be able to find it. But it's also, there's a link on my webpage. Um, and all the events and everything and all the information are all on that, um, on the website. Perfect. Thank you, Natalie, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate all that you have brought into the intro to herbalism. No problem. Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for doing this podcast. People are, I think, really going to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm excited for it, too. All right. New awesome topics coming up, by the way, everybody. <laughs> yes, they are. Okay, if you want to see the show notes for this podcast, go to summitforwellness.com slash podcast and you will see it right in there. And we do have upcoming podcasts next week. So stay tuned and subscribe to our channel. Take care, everybody. See you next time. You have been listening to the Summit for Wellness podcast. If you are ready to climb to the peak of your health, visit summitforwellness.com for more information. As you continue on your journey, we hope that you will join us next time on the Summit for Wellness podcast.